Welcome to Simplify. I'm Ben Schumann Stoller. Simplify is for anyone who's taken a close look at their habits, their happiness, their relationships, or their health and thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. In today's special bonus episode, episode number seven in season two, Caitlin Schiller talks with Eli Finkel, professor and social psychology researcher at Northwestern University. You might not have heard his name yet, but you may have heard about his new book, The All or Nothing Marriage. It's a pretty awesome title and a pretty awesome book, and it's been reviewed all over the place. I've seen it on a bunch of the top books of 2017 lists, so that's why we wanted to talk to Finkel. And Finkel basically says in his conversation with Caitlin that the age of the business marriage is over. The age of the love marriage is also over. Those just aren't good enough anymore. And this is pretty cool, especially when you take it in the context of our of our interview last week with Rebecca Traster. Basically, we've entered a new age. It's one that's propelled by individualism, capitalism, globalism, feminism, and a bunch of other isms, I'm sure. But it all comes together when it comes to marriage that in a way that Finkel calls the self-actualizing marriage. And I'd be happy to define it for you, but I should probably let Finkel define it himself. So let's just get into it. Here's Caitlin Schiller and Eli Finkel. Catch you guys in the bookend. I would like it if you could introduce yourself, please. I am Eli Finkel. I'm a professor at Northwestern University in the psychology department and the Kellogg School of Management. Excellent. Thank you. All right. So aside from being a married person and having vested interests in in researching modern marriage and what it's all about, how did you get started down this road researching for your new book, The All or Nothing Marriage? Well, one of the things that that seems unfortunate to me is that is that there's this this field, this scholarly field called relationship science or relationships research. Um, the field has been doing pretty well; like thousands of people have devoted their careers to it over the last 50 years or more. And yet, most of the insights from that field are cloistered away in academic journals. And so, one of the things I wanted to do with this book is is, is to bring some of the major findings from that scientific discipline to the to the broader public. What were you expecting to find out when you when you went picking through the scientific findings to bring them to the masses? Well, when I, I first set out to write the book, it wasn't this book. You know, working the working title was the freighted marriage and and the idea was that we're asking more and more of our marriage over time while we're actually investing less and less time alone with our spouse than in the past. And so that so in some sense we're we're kind of ruining marriage. We're kind of suffocating it, right? We're asking it to do all this stuff, but we're not providing the resources that it needs in order to thrive. And it, it was really through the immersion in other disciplines, disciplines like history and sociology and economics and other disciplines away from my home field of psychology, where I realized that that, that story is is not accurate anymore. It, it's not really a story about asking more and more and more and, and an institution that's in decline. It, it's more about how we're asking more, how we're asking less, and the ways in which that's making the best marriages better than ever, while at the same time, the, the average marriage is indeed getting a little bit worse. Okay, right. Um, I think this relates to what you call in the book the Mount Maslow model of marriage. Can you talk about that a little bit? How did that come out? And, and what is what is Maslow's triangle, for those who don't know it? If you could just take me through that. Sure. So, again, I, I initially had this idea that we're asking more and more of our marriages, but then it, it didn't take long before I started immersing myself in the history and the sociology of marriage before I realized, boy, that's not true in any sort of systematic way. And, and in particular, 
before industrialization, to a large extent, your marriage, your immediate family network was essential with the basics of survival, right? Like these days, a single person can marry or not marry, but most likely isn't going to starve. In 1800, it was a pretty precarious thing to be unmarried. And so I, I started to think about ways that we can conceptualize how marriage has changed in a way that we're asking more versus changed in a way in ways that we're asking less. And I realized that that we're asking less in terms of basic survival needs, but more in terms of these higher level psychological needs. And that really set off bells for a psychologist of Maslow's hierarchy. The idea is that we have a hierarchy of needs, um, and toward the bottom, the most fundamental or foundational needs are things like physiological and safety needs, like you want to eat enough food and not freeze to death and so forth. Um, and marriage was really about that in the pre-industrial era. It, you know, People wanted to love their spouse. Love was a great thing, but but the idea that, that you wouldn't marry a proper person because there wasn't enough love there would have seemed a little silly. And then over time, after industrialization, um, the economy gets a little bit better. A local crop failure doesn't cause starvation as much because we have trains and we can ship grain from other places. And also with industrialization, there's a surfeit of jobs in urban centers. And so more and more young people move to cities from other countries or from the rural countryside. And for the first time ever, they're geographically and economically independent of their parents. Um, and so those forces combine, and, and for the first time ever, marriage becomes about personal fulfillment, and in particular, people want to marry for love. And really, in around 1850 or so, the, the idea that, that love is the foundation of marriage becomes a dominant ideal in this culture, and that becomes increasingly true up through the 1950s. And then in the 1960s, uh, we shift again, not, not because we stop caring about love. We continue to care about love, but but now love, starting in the 1960s or so, and certainly up until today, love is no longer sufficient. Um, and now, for the first time ever, you could hear somebody say, "I love him. He's a wonderful man, and he's a good parent." But I feel like I'm stagnant. Like I'm not growing in this marriage, and and I don't feel like alive and vital in the marriage. And I'm not going to live that way for the next 40 years. And so I'm going to look elsewhere. And and so to put to put closure on this point in terms of Maslow's hierarchy, he has physiological and safety needs at the bottom. That was the first era of marriage before industrialization. He has love and belonging needs in the middle, which I think characterize pretty well that middle um, era of marriage, say between 1850 and maybe 1965 or so. But but toward the top of, of Maslow's hierarchy is esteem needs, but also self-actualization needs, the, the idea that, that we want to to live an authentic life and, and have a, a sense of, of meaning and purpose in a way that aligns with who we really are. And those are the things we're looking for for marriage these days. Wow. Okay. That's a, that seems like a pretty tall order to ask of another person. Um what are some what are some key attributes of a self-actualizing marriage? Well, the, the you know, it it builds on on what we were just discussing, right? So so those marriages that are are pretty effective today are indeed the ones that are successful in making us feel loved and allowing us to express love and also where both partners really help each other on their voyages of self-discovery and personal growth. I, I know a lot of us roll our eyes um, when we hear language like that and we think, oh, like those namby-pamby, you know, bleeding hearts. Um, but but the truth is those of us who are rolling our eyes are probably the same sorts of people who would still say, I'm not going to stay in a marriage where I feel like I'm not growing. I'm not going to stay in a marriage where I feel inauthentic, right? These are things that almost all of us these days think are crucial. But one of the things that I, that I do talk about in the book is 
that nobody just sort of lives at the top of Maslow's hierarchy all the time, right? It's not like you have this relationship and learn about each other and then just sort of reliably make each other feel self-actualized and loved for the next 60 years. So it's the best marriages these days are, are those that, yes, are capable of bringing out the best in each other and helping each other live sort of authentic, fulfilling lives, but that also have the good sense to realize when things are chaotic right now and there's no rule that says we always have to be looking to the top of Maslow's hierarchy and and are there ways that we can you know recalibrate our expectations for a limited period of time uh, when things are chaotic for example when there's two young kids at home and people are launching careers right it may not be the best time to think well how can we have you know soul searching conversations every night okay so is there for someone who is not yet in a marriage who says is in a, a long-term relationship with potential to be married. Is there a way to assess at that point how self-actualizing a marriage has the potential to be? You know, yes and no. I I mean, I I do think we, in general, put less time and effort into thinking about the future when when we make our marriage decisions. So so I'm not saying people don't think about the future at all, but our decisions are heavily calibrated to how we feel. Like why do we want to marry somebody, you know, these days in contrast to, you know, 1750 when these sorts of statements would have gotten you laughed out of your colonial hamlet. <laughs> we say things like I want to marry you because you're my best friend or I'm just so in love with you and I love thinking about you and and I just love that we have these adventures together. I mean, I you know, I wish I I could sort of listen in on the vows that that people make at their weddings cuz I I think you hear that sort of stuff these days all the time. And and I don't think those are trivial. I think those are important things. Um also important is okay, well as you think ahead 10 years, you know, whom do you want to be? Like, what version of yourself are you excited to bring out rather than, you know, maybe another version of yourself? And is is that the version of you that I really like, right? Are we heading the same way with our lives? And and I remember, actually, I, I broke up with somebody once, and this is why people should never date a relationships researcher. Um, <laughs> but I broke up with somebody once because um, I remember we were sort of bantering and, and uh, you know, I, I was being, a, you know, a little bit playful or something. And she said, like, why aren't you like this more? Like, I love it when you're like this. And I thought, you know, I'm happy to be like that, but that's not the version of me that I like the best. So so the issue we had really wasn't so much about how our relationship was going at the time. It was a lot about, is the version of me that she liked the best the same version of me that I liked the best? Mm. And and to the degree that, that we can that we can think carefully about those things, then uh, we may be able to make decisions that are at least somewhat better. The reason why I'm using tentative language and, and hedging is not just because I'm a scientist, but also because, you know, we ourselves can't predict this stuff that perfectly, right? So so when I say to you, what are you going to want in 10 years, you know, you're going to be overconfident that, that you know what that is. But that said, it's not like there's no signal signal there, right? It's not all just a random guess. You have some inclination of, of who you are and who you aspire to be, and those things do have some predictive value, even though they're they're not perfect. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it really begins with being able to accurately assess your own needs and self, rather than just to see how you are in the partnership. Yes. What I'm talking about when I talk about, you know, self-actualization, or when somebody like, you know, Abraham Maslow talks about self-actualization, the idea is that there's sort of an ideal version of you. The, the metaphor that I often like for this, even though I think it's imperfect, is... is um, 
something that my PhD mentor developed. Her name was, it was Carol Rusbolt. Um, and she developed this idea of the Michelangelo effect. So let me talk about Michelangelo for a second. So this is obviously the famous Renaissance sculptor. He has this profoundly modest perspective on what sculpting is. He says it's a process by which the sculptor scrapes away the the edges and rough spots and reveals the beautiful form that was already slumbering within the rock, right? So, so he doesn't think about creating the David. He thinks about taking the the marble and releasing the David that was always nested within there. Now, in some sense, that's of course true. It's also like profoundly modest and ridiculous, but but the metaphor is is interesting when you apply it to human relationships. So. We all have an actual self, that is who we are today, but we also have an ideal self that's whatever, right? It's going to vary by individual, but maybe she's a little bit more patient than, than we are right now, or maybe she's um, a little bit kinder, or maybe she's a little less lazy or whatever. But the idea is that relationship partners can serve as sculptors for each other. That is, you can help to bring out or help me change from this sort of rough, unpolished version of myself to a, a more fully formed version of myself. And and so, yes, the idea is that the strongest relationships these days, and, and this is what we're, a lot of us are looking for from our marriage, is not only a sense of, of who we are, but but somebody who can help us discover who we are and indeed help us grow toward that person over time. Um, what you just said, it reminded the Michelangelo effect. It made me think about the concept of the process of limbic revisioning and how when people spend enough time around each other, they end up influencing how each other's sort of emotional psyche systems works. Oh, sure. Yes. I mean, I, I haven't heard that term, but but um, social psychologists do, uh, we in general do a lot of research on how uh, you know, significant others or other people around us influence how we think, feel, and behave. I mean, that's in some sense the essence of social psychology. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's substantial. But the, the implications, I, I think, of that limbic revisioning idea, um, which is true, is that um, our spouse has become really the person we're around the most. Now, that doesn't mean we're around our spouse alone that much, in part because we're um, spending so much time doing active parenting relative to earlier generations. Um, but, but the amount of time we spend with our broader social networks, especially the amount of time we spend with our broader social networks independent of our spouse, has, has plummeted. Even in just recent decades, it's, it's dropped substantially since the 70s. And so if it's true that we engage in this limbic revisionist process, processing, or the way I would say it, if it's true that other people, the people around us, affect the way we think, feel, and behave, well, these days the spouse has more of an influence than anybody else. Hmm. Do you think that that's, uh, maybe this is too, too binary a question for scientists to answer, but do you think that that's more of a positive or a negative thing for people? I just, I keep thinking about how we're increasingly in our, our own thought bubbles um, that we see in social media use and in how we socialize in, in our smaller groups. It seems like it could be a danger. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, this is the idea. I mean, so remember the title of the book is The All or Nothing Marriage. And and the idea is that as our expectations have gone from, you know, the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy toward the top, as we've gone as we've gone from expecting, you know, basic physiological and safety need fulfillment through marriage to these relatively deeper, more sophisticated, more complex, more idiosyncratic um, sorts of need fulfillment that you, you know, you really need deep understanding of each other's emotions and psyches in order to fulfill. Um, you end up with this 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 bifurcation, this divergence in in how marriage is going these days, and and in particular, 
as those expectations have have ascended Mas, Maslow's hierarchy, it's become less simple to meet them, right? So so, an ex, so a marriage today that would have been fully satisfying in the 1950s now disappoints us, right? Because because even though the outcomes we're getting, the, the circumstances of the marriage are comparable, the expectations are different, and therefore it's falling short, which is why the average marriage is getting a little bit worse. But at the same time, Maslow is quite clear, and he's right, that it's really those top-level needs, those needs toward the top of his hierarchy that, that yield a profound sense of, of fulfillment, a, a, in his phrase, richness of the inner life. Right. So, I mean, obviously he understands that that eating enough food is a big deal, but it's not the sort of thing that makes the difference between having like a, a fully solid life and a truly exemplary life. It's it's really belonging, yes, esteem, and in particular self-actualization that makes us feel this rich sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. And so while at the same time the average marriage is, is getting a little bit worse because it's it's falling short of these elevated expectations, we're now at least shooting for the top of Maslow's hierarchy. And those of us who are able to build and sustain a marriage that that allows us to fulfill the needs toward the top of that hierarchy, we're achieving a level of, of fulfillment, a level of meaning and purpose from our marriage that, that would have been out of reach in an era where people weren't even trying. Hmm. I want to talk a bit about growth beliefs versus destiny beliefs and, and what they are and how they affect a partnership. So... There's research going back a long way on the nature of intelligence, and and some people believe that intelligence is like a fixed entity. You sort of have a lot of it or you don't, and that's that. And other people believe that, that it's something that you can develop, that it's malleable, and that with some effort, you can become more intelligent. Now, it turns out that, that this research, which has been going on at least since the 1980s, has shown that that when people have a setback, right, they do poorly on an exam, for example, people in that first belief who think that intelligence is fixed tend to give up because their their attribution, their explanation for why they did poorly on the exam is, oh, I'm just not smart. Um, whereas those of us who, who adopt a more um, growth-oriented perspective on intelligence, it, when we do poorly on an exam, we think, oh, we better work harder on that. That's something I'm going to need to cultivate. Well, since at least the 1990s, people have been pl- um, applying a similar set of ideas in relationships. So it turns out that there's individual differences. Some of us believe that that partners are either meant to be or they're not. Um, and that you could call a, a destiny belief. You believe that 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 things are fixed, either these 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 two individuals, either my partner and I are compatible or we are incompatible and that's the story. And then there are growth beliefs. And the growth beliefs say that relationships develop through the, you know, resolution of incompatibilities, right? Through through the taking the opportunity to learn about each other and become better partners. And if you have a destiny mindset and you have a big fight with your partner, it's a little bit hard to know what to do because what does that big fight signify, right? Does it signify, well, I guess we're not compatible. I thought we were compatible, but we're not. Like, that's not a crazy conclusion if you have a destiny belief about relationships. But if you have a growth belief about relationships and you have a big fight, this is an opportunity to learn about each other and to try to reconcile and to become closer as a result. Um, and, And so... Given that conflict, including serious conflict, is pretty much inevitable. I don't. I mean, almost nobody is going to go uh, through a a ten year, much less a fifty year relationship without having some serious conflict. Having a growth belief tends to be beneficial for the relationship in terms of helping us become, you know, more forgiving and and willing to work to try to resolve what the conflict was and to try to become better as a couple. 
It sounds like uh, Carol Dweck's research on... Uh, That's right. Yeah. When I was referencing that work from the at least the 80s on intelligence, that, that was Carol Dweck. That's, that's exactly what the lineage is for these ideas. We are taking a quick break from Caitlin and Eli Finkel to hear from one of our favorite episodes of season one. This is sex and relationship advice columnist Dan Savage. Relationships are so complicated because people are so complicated, mm. but people make it worse by clinging to bullshit, clinging to fictions. One of the things that constantly comes up when you write a sex and relationship column is, I'm not enough for her, I'm not enough for him. And the simple answer to, I worry that I'm not enough for him, is you are not enough for him. No one can be all things to another person sexually or in any other way. But we pretend we're supposed to be. And we convince ourselves that our partner is supposed to be, even as we know that they aren't. You catch your partner taking a discreet look at the rear end of your waiter. You should just let that go. If we could all stop policing each other for what we should just accept, we would generate a lot less conflict in our relationships. That was a fantastic interview that Caitlin actually did with Dan Savage from season one. So if you haven't heard that episode and want to check it out, you can find it at Blinkist.com slash Simplify. There you can actually find all of the episodes from season one. Or if you want to check out the transcript and just read through it because, I don't know, you're at work and you forgot your headphones and you don't want all your colleagues listening to your podcast at the same time, that's also cool. Just go to Blinkist.com slash magazine and search for Dan Savage and you'll find the transcript there. Even though season two is over after this episode, we'd still very much like to hear from you. Let us know what you learned was easier or simpler than you initially thought it was. You can send us an email or record a voice memo and email it to us at podcast at Blinkist.com. All right, let's get back to the interview with Caitlin and Eli Finkel. You were just speaking about how if you have a conflict with your partner, it's an opportunity to, to learn from it and find strategies that work for both of you to do better. Can you share a couple of these love hacks if you're already in a relationship that is pretty good, but maybe is is moving through a rough patch? What are some things that people can do to have a more harmonious relationship and, and stay in it and stay engaged? Yeah, I mean, one of the most fun things that you know, about writing the book was writing this this chapter on love hacks. And and so this is a term that I, I introduce in the book. Most of your listeners will be familiar with the term life hack, which is just some sort of quick and dirty procedure you can use to be a little bit more efficient or a little bit more effective. And so love hacks apply that same idea in, in the relationships domain. And so the rule that I set up for something being a love hack is that you can do it by yourself. That is, this doesn't have to be something you coordinate with your partner and that it doesn't take much work, maybe something on the order of, you know, 10 minutes a a month of of just trying to rethink things uh, in a way that's beneficial for us and for the relationship and for our partner. Uh, There's a bunch of examples. Again, all of them are are science-based. I'll talk about one of the ones that we developed here uh, at Northwestern. This is one where we we uh, train people to adopt a a third party perspective on conflict in the relationship, and in particular, we recruited 120 couples, married couples from the Chicago and Evanston area, and. Every four months for two years, they wrote about the biggest conflict they'd had in their marriage over the previous four months. But then in the second year, we assigned people to this third-party reappraisal condition. Um, half the couples were assigned to this condition. Half were just stayed in the control condition. And in this thir- third-party condition, what happens is you you still write about the conflict, just like everybody's been doing all along. But now you spend an additional seven minutes writing about that conflict from the perspective of a neutral third party who wants the best for all involved. Uh, and what we find is that people who do this, we assign people to do it 
three times over the course of the year, so it's a total of 21 minutes of writing over the second year of the study, we find that those people don't have less conflict, but they have less distress about the conflict that they do have. And consequently, they tend to feel greater happiness and trust and intimacy in the relationship than people who are in the control condition and didn't do that third-party condition. Hmm. So then what would that look like? It would look like, um, I don't know, my partner went out and came home later than he was supposed to and woke me up from sleeping and I'm really mad about it. What would that what would it look like to appraise that from a third party? I mean, look, each person is going to do it differently, but I, I could I could take a crack at it. Right. It's it's like when you're when you're there and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, you went out. That's fine. But now I'm I'm awake. I, you know that I have trouble falling asleep. How could you be co- so inconsiderate? Like it's it's pretty easy to um, go down a spiral of of angry self righteousness when we're in a conflict. <laughs> in fact, in fact, I think that's probably a default for many of us. Right? Yeah. Is to feel is to feel very self righteous, and then you sort of you know try to adopt an, a benevolent third party perspective. This could be the perspective of somebody, a good friend. It could be the perspective of God. Right? Like this will vary from person to person, um, but it has to be somebody who wants the best for both of you. And that person thinks. Yeah, definitely was inconsiderate. He was kind of a jerk, and he certainly could have come home quieter. Um, on the other hand, like he's had a hard time at work, and this was an opportunity to see his old college friends that he hasn't seen in a while. And and right, and it, it's not like it makes you think, oh, I've been wrong. It just makes you adopt this more panoramic perspective where you know the 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 extent to which we perceive things as I'm the good guy and you're the evil guy tends to dissipate. Hmm. A lot of what you said sounds a little bit, or, or to my ear, sounds kind of daunting. The idea of, of having to find a partner who is ideally capable of fulfilling your needs now and someone who can help you grow in the future into who you want to be. Um, is this a thing that you think people should feel more hopeful or more more worried about? Because I'm having a hard time over here. <laughs> um, um. I, I do think it's daunting. I, I mean, I, I, and I think people know that, right? I mean, I, I you know, in an era where, you know, you were likely to meet four eligible potential people, you know, it, it, people didn't hold out for some type of perfection or or at least some type of of extremely deep psychological connection across all these different elements. And, and so I do think it's harder to get it right these days um, than it was in the past. But but if, if we could broaden the question a little bit to say, you know, am I optimistic or pessimistic about where we're going as a culture in terms of marriage, I'm I'm more optimistic than pessimistic because, yeah, because I th- I think compatibility is real. I, I was saying that earlier, and I, I think it's true. There is there is definitely reality to compatibility, but a lot of what makes for a good relationship is the decision to work on the relationship and to try to understand each other better and to and to try to respect and appreciate who the partner really is even in those cases where you you know you might have preferred that in this one dimension you had married somebody a little bit different but overall this is a a decent person and and you have been able to build something special and had a couple kids and you you just resolve you're going to make it work and one of the things that that we know again from a lot of social psychology research is once we feel committed once we decide we're going all in on something we tend to be pretty good at at a a generous sort of self-delusion and this comes highly recommended <laughs> so one of the things that i like um is this is this line of research within social psychology where um we look at how 
people respond when they're presented with a tr- an attractive potential alternative. And it turns out that, that to the degree that you're highly committed to your current partner, you tend to derogate that alternative. You tend to think, well, yeah, I mean, sure, he's good looking, but but I'm sure he's like totally annoying, right? This is like a default reaction that highly committed people uh, tend to adopt. And what's interesting about it is when the person isn't particularly attractive on a, on a relatively objective metric, right? If, if, if a, a person is deliberately made out to be sort of neutral in terms of attractiveness, overall attractiveness, um, commitment isn't related to how appealing you think that that person is. It's only when the person is particularly appealing, only when that person might be a real threat to your relationship that you tend to say, nah, I'm sure he's totally arrogant. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not pessimistic, right? I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that that we can, most of us, that we can, you know, find somebody who's compatible with us, um, certainly compatible enough, and then just resolve. We're going to do a good job. Mm-hmm. What is what is something that you found in your time researching this subject, or even living living a marriage? Um, what's something that you found is actually a lot simpler than you initially thought it was? Savoring the good times. Um, and it's not that it's it's not that that sounds like a hard thing to do. It's something that that we don't think to do enough. Um, you know, we're, we're there's a lot of advice out there about how to you know navigate conflict. Um, there's relatively little about how, how do we go about talking to our spouse about the little daily wins, right? And 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 it turns out, I mean, this is research from people like Shelley Gable at UCLA and her colleagues. It turns out that little gestures of enthusiasm carry tremendous power. And so if your partner says, you know, this is neat. My boss actually gave me a pretty big compliment today. You can say like, hey, congratulations, and then move on. Or you can say, whoa, I'm getting out a bottle of wine, right? <laughs> like just savor the little stuff in a way that, might not seem self-evident or not seem intuitive because it's almost too small to bother, but that's the wrong way to think about it, at least for most of us. For most of us, it's stopping to savor those little wins, those little daily things, and enjoy them together that can add this this extra layer of, of beauty to the relationship and to life in general. Mm, that is a really nice answer, I have to say. If you If you could give anybody out there in a marriage or thinking that someday they would like to be in one or just in an important relationship to them, if you could give them a piece of advice, what would it be? I I would say play to your strengths. Um, You know, try your best to understand who you are, understand your spouses. And once you do that, you can figure out what is it that this marriage is going to be about? There's Again, there's no rules that say that every marriage has to be about the same things. What are we going to do? What are we going to prioritize? What sorts of conversations are we going to have together? And look, you don't like going to the theater. That's great. Turns out I have lots of friends who like going to the theater, and that gives us separate time to cultivate our, our friendships separately. But until we've thought seriously about what we're going to ask of this particular relationship, we're going to find ourselves disappointed about the fact that this relationship isn't meeting every need that that I'm bringing to it. And we're going to end up, most of us are going to end up with too thin of a life, that, that we're going to end up with with too thin of a, of a broader social network. We're not going to engage in enough fun time and meaningful time with friends, other family members, and so forth. I always like to ask people I talk to about books they've read lately or or books that have had a, a profound impact on them. Do you want to give me a couple that you that you really like or you're reading lately or you think are good reads for people who are interested in your sort of fields of study? 
Um, in terms of people who who I think think well about relationships, I, I would highly recommend um, Esther Perel. Uh, she's widely uh, famous at the moment. She's she's got a terrific podcast on Audible. She does. Yeah, is really good. Her first um, book is called Mating in Captivity. It was one of the most eye-opening books that I've read. And again, I, I study this stuff for a living. She's a clinician, so she comes at things from a different perspective. And I think she has all sorts of novel and exciting insights. Um, and in terms of history uh, of relationships, if somebody wants to get get a, a sense of, of how relationships have developed over time. C- certainly my book gets into that, but but my book owes a great debt to Stephanie Kuntz. Uh-huh. She's got great books, one of which is called The Way We Never Were. Talks about this idealizing of the 1950s as if as if that was like traditional life, and and she has to remind us that Leave It to Beaver was not a documentary, yeah. <laughs> right? Because we we tend to overperceive that 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 was the way things always were, just because that's when television came in. Yeah. But, but the 1950s were like a weirdo eye blink of time, and then her book called Marriage: A History, I forget the subtitle, but mm-hmm. it's something like you know how love conquered marriage mm. is just fascinating. Awesome. Eli, what still gets you excited about the field of research that you're in? What are you still passionate about and interested in about this? So I want to understand more deeply how people can sustain passion in a long-term marriage. Uh, we have a lot of different projects going going on right now, including with my my postdoc, Katie Carswell, trying to figure out, okay, on average, we know that that passion declines, and yet it doesn't for everybody. There is a, you know, a, a minority of people who are able to sustain a reasonably high level of romantic desire for each other, not only on the course of five to 10 years, but over the quite long term. How are they able to do that? That's, I think, one of the, the, the biggest questions that we have, because passion tends tends to thrive on things like novelty and excitement. And how do you sustain that sort of stuff? Um, when you go to bed next to somebody and, and listen to them, you know, be, berating the, the AT&T guy uh, on the phone and, and, you know, walking the baby around all the time, how, how does that stay hot? Um, and I'm excited about the fact that, that we're, we're starting to do a better job at communicating some of the the findings in our field to the broader public, you know, blogging or writing books. And I, I, I think that's beneficial because as fun as it is that we go to conferences and talk to one another and learn a lot and talk about, you know, complex statistical procedures for, you know, analyzing complex data, it's also fun to make sure that that word gets out about how the rest of us can improve our own relationships. Great. And on that note, is there a place that people can follow your work? Do you Are you a Twitter person? Do you have a blog? Uh, I'm a Twitter person. I have a newsletter. Um, on Twitter, I'm uh, at Eli J. Finkel. It's F-I-N-K-E-L. Um, and if they go to EliFinkel.com, they can sign up for my newsletter, which is just a, once a month. I send some thoughts about relationships, and, including what's happening in the science. Very cool. All right. That's it. Um, do you have any, any final thoughts or questions for me? Anything that you really wanted to say but didn't get to? No, it was a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad, uh, glad we had the chance to, to chat. All right. Thanks so much, Eli. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to the bookend, where we end with books. Unfortunately, it's not all happy here. Caitlin fell quite ill recently, so um, she'll be okay, but she's ill. And we had to find a special substitute for this for this episode. So my esteemed colleague, Emily Phillips, is filling in that Emily. And I'm super glad. Hi, Emily. Hi, thanks for having me on here. For sure. So 
this is cool. Um, you this had time cool. to do this. Thank you. Yeah, um, and it's exciting because it is the last bookend that we will make until season three rolls around. That's true. No pressure. <laughs> okay, but first, let's talk about that interview real quick. Can you answer the questions that Caitlin often does? Yeah. Okay, like normally I ask her why we wanted to have a particular guest on Simplify. Um, in this case, I think it's it works with you because you're also a big Eli Finkel fan. Totally. So maybe I can ask you, why why did we want to have Eli Finkel on Simplify so bad? Well, I read Eli Finkel's interview in The Atlantic, and I quickly realized that his take on marriage really gave heft to something that I've been speaking about with my contemporaries and friends, um, about how the partnerships that we want look really different or can look really different from what our parents have. And Finkel gets into why that is by addressing this new idea of the self-actualizing marriage. Right. Nicely said. Thanks. Um, I think there's obviously a million of his love hacks, which are really good points to make. And we should we should definitely promote his book. It's something that everyone in the office seem, seems to be talking about when it comes to relationship books. Mm-hmm. Um, and these love hacks, the cool thing that I like about them is that they can be done alone. They're kind of like mental resets for yourself to make relationships stronger. Yeah, that's cool, right? I'm, I'm really glad that um, Caitlin and he got into that um, because a lot of what you work on in a relationship is stuff that you work on together. But there's really a lot of improvements that you can make just for yourself and by yourself um, by trying to adopt a new perspective. Yeah, and we're going to get into this mindset perspective thing in a second. But um, before we do, what do you think... This is another question we always ask. Mm. What do you think is one thing we should all remember from this from this conversation? Well, I, I really like this idea that a relationship depends on basic compatibility for sure. But at the end of the day, um, how successful that compatibility feels has a lot to do with deciding, with making decisions. We're deciding how? Like... Uh... Like deciding to commit or what do you mean? Yeah, deciding to commit, sure, but also deciding what you want a partnership to be about. So what the goals you want to achieve together are, um, how you hope it will help you grow. That's taking a real bird's eye view perspective on relationships that I think is really important to do every now and again. um, Because it's hard to see the forest for the trees sometimes. Right. Relationship tree. Relationship tree. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> Relationship so, trees. And relationship forests. Yeah. And, okay, so zooming out, thinking, what do I want this relationship to be about, right? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Okay, so that's cool. Um, and it's a lot of stuff to think about. But for now, books. Books. Let's get into books. That's what we do. All right. So <laughs> thanks for again for filling in for Caitlin last minute. You made a book list. Um Let's hit them. All right, let's do this. Sure. I've got a few for us waiting here, and we'll start with Carol Dweck's title called Mindset. A uh, classic. A classic. One of our CEO's favorites, yeah, I think. He's, I think every time people ask him what, your, what his favorite <laughs> book is, Holger, Holger of Syme always says. That is says, Holger's favorite book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Carol Dweck, she's a psychology professor at Stanford, um, and she has influenced so much research out there today. Um, her work has been a really big influence on the positive psychology movement and touches everything from new experiments in social, social psychology um, to how business coaches work, for example, with their clients. Right. So why why is this book so famous? Like, why do we always talk about it? Yeah. And and why, what can people really get from the book? So um, mindset, what's really important to take away from it is how um, everybody should strive to adopt a growth mindset. Um, so this is one that breaks up this dogmatic idea of either you've got it or you don't. 
So the system that many of us are taught. And instead, it's to encourage people to be patient and to focus on improvement and change and potential. So it's really the foundation of what Finkel spoke about when he talks about growth versus destiny beliefs in relationships. Yeah. And Carol Dweck calls it, what was it, growth mindset or fixed mindset? Yeah, the growth mindset or the fixed mindset. So the growth mindset implies that um, it's not as if you are born with some kind of innate quality that's going to keep you from ever achieving what you want to do, um, but that you should always focus on steps to carry yourself forward. Yeah, and it it connects to Finkel's idea as they talk about in the interview, so we won't go too much into that. But okay, second book, second book. Excuse me. What else? What else you got? <laughs> so the next one is a bit of a surprise. <laughs> it doesn't have to do directly with relationships or marriage, and yet it does. What? Okay, explain. So the title is called Surprise, and it's written by Tanya Luna and Leanne Renninger. Uh, It talks about the many ways that surprise can create the most fulfilling life that we can have. Um, And it's important to remember, and here's how it relates to Finkel's interview. Um, It includes research by the grand dame of all relationship counselors, a Ms. Esther Perel. Oh, yeah. Esther, yeah. All right. Finkel mentions her, yeah? He does, yeah. And one of her big things is how in modern relationships we crave stability, but what we really need to do is to introduce surprise. Um, And this book has some further research on that. Cool. Um, I don't think Blinkist has Esther Perel's books yet, but they're in... We don't have any of them yet, but her first book, um, which is called Mating in Captivity, is something that a lot of our community have um, requested and have been asking for. So I predict it will be joining the Blinkist Library quite soon. Oh, cool. Maybe actually by the time this episode is published, people can... Yeah, people people should take a look. Check it out. Yeah. All right. Last book. Best book? Last book. Last book. I don't know about the best book, but the last book, I mean, there's so many good books. This is a good book. One of the three we're featuring today. (laughs) This one is by David White. Right. White. Oh, yeah. He's a poet. He's the um, English poet. Yeah, exactly. Um, He's known for his poetry or best known for his poetry. But he also wrote this really lovely book that explores the three loves that we develop in our lives. And these three loves are a love for our vocation, the love of ourselves, and the love of another special person, and the ways in which all three intertwine. Um, So the title is called, appropriately, The Three Marriages, and I think you all should check it out. Nice. Okay, well then, that was it then. We made a book list. We talked about people. We talked about Carol Dweck, which is Mm -hmm. always good fun. Um, (laughs) And we'll put up the list in the show notes on the Blinkist magazine so everybody can read through it. We might as well also remind everybody that all the past episode book lists are also online at the Blinkist magazine. So people can go go check that out. They should, yeah. Well, listen, thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks, Emily. See you in the emails. Yeah, see you there. <laughs> Catch you in the emails. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to the last episode of Season 2 of Simplify. It was produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, Caitlin Schiller, Emily Phillips, who we thank once again for coming on last minute, Nat Daroshkina, and Odie Constantino, whose Dog de Bordeaux, also known as the French Mastiff, won third place at Crufts in 2010. If you enjoyed this episode or feel that you learned something cool, could you please do us a favor and send it to somebody? Share it. Spread the love especially if you think that person will actually learn something from this episode. Um, That's how podcasts get around. That's how we've reached now close to half a million downloads, um, actually over half a million downloads. So thanks and thanks already to all the people who listened to us, followed us this season. 
people who tweeted at me, BSTO, or Caitlin Schiller at Caitlin Schiller, C A I T L I N S C H I L L E R, or left us reviews on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, starred us on Pocket Cast, told people everything people did. It was amazing. We're very thankful. Um, so thank you. Also, Simplify is made by the same people who make Blinkist. And I work there, Emily works there, Caitlin works there. So if you don't know, Blinkist is a learning app that takes insights from the world's best-selling nonfiction books and condenses them into these focused little capsules of knowledge that you can listen to or read in just 15 minutes or less. And if you want to check out Blinkist, we made another voucher code just for this episode. You can get 14 days free if you go to Blinkist.com slash friends and type in voucher code marriage. I couldn't, I'm sorry, I couldn't think of like an awesome one, but it's just marriage. It's easy to remember. Blinkist.com slash friends, type in marriage, all lowercase. And last thing, thanks so much for sending in the voice memos with the answer to Caitlin's favorite question, what have you learned was so much easier than you thought it was. If you haven't done it yet, you can still record it and email it to us at podcast at Blinkist.com. We're still collecting them and maybe we'll do something again in season three with them. We definitely love to hear from you either way. And from hearing from you, we're hearing about cool other authors you guys think we should interview. And it's just nice to hear from you. So you can also just email us podcast at Blinkist.com. So that's it for this season. And on behalf of a very sick Caitlin who apologizes, this is Ben checking out. See you guys in the next season. Bye. Bye.